Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Join host Karen Doyle Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading researchers, authors, and clinicians discussing issues in attachment theory. Today, Karen flips the script and puts herself in the hot seat by welcoming guest host Josh Carlson, Executive Director of the Knowledge Center at Chaddock, to discuss their soon-to-be-launched Developmental Trauma and Attachment Institute. Part 2 will be released on April 12th. In this episode, Josh and Karen discuss the upcoming Developmental Trauma and Attachment Institute, a new online learning opportunity brought to you by the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Visit tkcchaddock.org for more information and to sign up for the Institute where you'll receive instruction from Karen, Josh, and Kirsty Ruggles. The first 10 members will receive an exclusive welcome kit. The Institute starts on July 1st, so register today. Visit tkcchaddock.org. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. I'm your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter, and I'm joining you here from Chaddock with a Chaddock colleague. Uh, So this podcast is going to be a little bit different. Uh, The tables are going to be turned a bit. And my colleague, Josh Carlson, is going to be interviewing me, actually, about learning, um, the journey of continued development as a clinician, and some thoughts that we have about that, and actually some interesting opportunities we're going to be launching related to that. But uh, let me tell you a little bit about Josh. Josh, he uh, is the executive director of the Knowledge Center at Chaddock, which is the arm of the Chaddock organization that does training, consultations, supervision and produces this podcast. So Josh has been at Chaddock for 18 years and I'm so happy to be talking with you today, Josh. Yeah, Karen, thank you for uh, allowing me to uh, turn the tables on you, as you said, and start asking you some questions. Yes, yeah. So I'm, I'm looking forward to the discussion. Yeah, me too. Um, so, you know, as I was thinking about uh, this opportunity to chat with you about therapist professional development, and my first question that came to my mind was, there's just so much information out there about attachment theory, attachment-based um, services and interventions, trauma-informed services and intervention. Is that a good thing? or a bad thing, or somewhere in the middle? Yes. Well, I think it's all of the above. I mean, I think one of the things that we know related to the information age is that information is not the prized thing. You know, that is how it used to be. You know, an article or a book you could get your hands on about a certain topic. Now, with this overabundance of information, it's much more about with limited bandwidth in my brain and time in my schedule, what is most important? You know, it's more about curated information about these topics. So what's important for me to know about attachment? What is important for me to know about trauma? Um, In the case of our specialty area, what's important to know about developmental trauma? So it's much more about having Um, the opportunity to somehow cull all that information and figure out, you know, what really matters. You know, that's the first thing I would say about that. 
Okay. And so when you, when you're talking about, you know, you've got that, we all have that limited bandwidth and I love how you said that. Um, so when you're trying to go out there and, and you have that limited bandwidth and you see this abundance of information, what are some things that you try to keep in mind or keep in the back of your head as a lens or a filter to help guide you through that process? Right. So, you know, I'm always wanting to look at credibility of the person presenting this. So, you know, when I see a published article in a peer-reviewed journal by maybe one of my heroes, like Dr. Miriam Steele, you know, obviously I know there's been a lot of checks and balances on whatever it is that she has written. She is a renowned attachment scientist. So there's not, you know, a whole lot where I'm going to say, oh, I, you know, think maybe she doesn't know what she's talking about. So we've got one end of a continuum right there. The other end of the continuum is like a Google search, like just like read, read what it's whatever is out there by whoever. Uh, And, you know, I think that relates to the issue that we were speaking of earlier. You know, what is credible? What is based in current understanding of interpersonal neurobiology and developmental psychology and the sciences, particularly as you and listeners are going to be aware, doing therapy in the name of working on attachment has a tumultuous, even dangerous history in terms of some of the things that people justify doing with children who are seen as having attachment difficulties. So I think that idea of, you know, what's out there, what's reliable, what's based in science and, and is it credible is really important. And I think about this with clinicians, but I also think about this with parents Mm. who maybe do not have as much opportunity to be exposed, um, you know, to, to things in academia conferences or, or whatever, that's just not something, you know, they might have the interest or, or time to do. So, you know, my role at Shaddock for many years, particularly once I um, moved to director of program strategy, and even now has been scanning the industry all the time, looking in um, psychology, treatment approaches, uh, science of all sorts, what is the latest and greatest and best credible thing out there that we can learn and be aware of in working with kids and families? Yeah. So, you know, as you were talking, you know, my mind started going to, um, the the perception that I see a lot of clinicians and I probably have even got caught up into this myself of, you know, th- wanting that credibility and f- drifting towards manualized interventions, you know, evidence based practices. Um, what are some of the pros and cons in your mind of, you know, using those manualized uh, modalities in your practice as a, a as a clinician? Yeah. Oh, that's a big topic. (laughs) And I'm probably going to 
speak a little as though I'm talking out of two sides of my mouth because I'm emphasizing research. And in order to do research, you have to have manualize what you're doing so it's reproducible that everybody is doing the same thing otherwise how can you measure whether it works or not if one clinician does it one way and one does it the next right so but there are also a lot of pitfalls to that you know one is just following a, a manual you know we do this session one we do this session two without a whole lot of uh, thought behind it in terms of looking deeply is this really what this person needs at this moment in time um so sometimes it, it's like the manual runs the treatment instead of you know what's going on in the relationship with the clinician and their own assessment mm-hmm. so that I, I, I sometimes think that these manuals have yes they've been created for research purposes but they also help clinicians who feel insecure about what to do to just have something in front of them that tells them what to do. Mm. And that's, that's a lot less um, anxiety producing than sitting there and feeling stupid, which we sometimes do with our clients. And so this desire to, to know what to do next, this desire to have a technique that we're going to apply to the therapy process begins to override the most important thing, which is a way of being with clients. And so that is one of the concerns. Another thing about manualized and researched approaches is there's this problem with, um, when somebody says, you know, we want to use an evidence-based practice, the question, the second question needs to be, what is it evidence-based for? Mm. So what I have seen is there's different models out there. And maybe um, it's evidence-based for treating depression or, you know, we know, for example, child parent psychotherapy started out in looking at violence that children were being exposed to. Um, So a traumatic event, but um, specifically domestic violence when it started. Um, So I think that there's this problem. I just yesterday, in fact, I saw a website that was rating different therapy approaches. And I won't mention any names, but there were two therapies that were rated really low that are probably have more research behind them than almost any other trauma-informed model for children. And they were giving it a low rating. Well, they were looking at how it impacts placement disruption. Well, these were not models that were designed to impact foster care placement disruption. So, I mean, it's sort of like saying, you know, I went to the the doctor for heart treatment and then we do a study and say, this didn't help your liver and rate the treatment approach low, you know? So it's like, it's all like very um, confusing. So I do want to say, you know, always ask, you know, evidence-based for what? Because even judges are sometimes saying, well, I want this kid to have treatment 
X, Y, or Z. And if you look at what the, the evidence has gathered in terms of what that treatment model is effective for, it's not even what the child is, is dealing with or what the family is dealing with. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, that that's another pitfall I, I see related to these techniques where once they're evidence based, man, we're just going to slap that on everybody here. It has an evidence base. I don't know what, but like the court ordered it. So here's what you get. You know, <laughs> that's not good. <laughs> no. Well, and you know what I'm what's just a theme that is coming up for me as you're talking about going about finding credible information using evidence-based approaches is the word discernment learning how to look at all of the information and putting it together and making your best clinical decision based from what the information that you're taking in you know it kind of reminds me you know when you were talking about following an evidence-based approach and and not necessarily take what the client is giving you in that moment, but you're, you're doing what the model says to do next. It's kind of like, remember when, uh, you know, GPSs first came out and you hear about someone driving into a lake and that's because that's where the GPS (laughs) told them to drive. They don't, they don't use some common sense and, and discernment of like, that's, that's not what needs to happen right now. Right. Um, I really need to, to assess my environment, assess what's going on and use my clinical training and knowledge, skills, and expertise to say, do I do what the model says to do next? Or does my client need something different? Right, right. I think you're exactly right. And, you know, somebody might chuckle and think, well, that's, you know, an extreme example, but not necessarily, you know, our work is complex. And when we're in a session with our our a family or a child and we're feeling uh, overwhelmed, confused, anxious, fearful, depending on the level of behaviors from the child or, or whoever historically, mm-hmm. you know, we're, we're not in the highest part of our brain. Mm -hmm. Right. We're in a real reaction back brain, you know, place and just reacting. So I think that it is easy to lose discernment Mm -hmm. on that. And yeah, so I think, you know, part part of, you know, why we're talking about some of this today um, is that we are, you know, going to launch an institute at Chadha, the Developmental Trauma and Attachment Institute. And I want that to be a space where first somebody's doing some of the work of sorting through this for you, like knowing that whatever we share there, whatever speakers we have, they've been vetted. Like this is like a um, space where you're going to get good sound information. Mm -hmm. Um, And then also a space of support for clinical decisions, because you know what, if I don't have a manual and I'm overwhelmed and confused, I want good supervision support. I I, want to be able to run this by somebody and say, you know, I want to consult with somebody, you know, this is what I'm, I'm thinking of doing, you know, what are your thoughts kind of thing? Yeah. So 
I'm I'm really excited about the institute and, and as as things are coming together with that. Um, when you think about your 27 years of experience here at Chadock and the work that you've uh, done and and working as a supervisor, as a trainer, as a consultant, what are some of the lessons that you've learned? in supporting others who are going through the process of professional development and learning not just um, the what, but how do you then incorporate that into your practice and mm-hmm. in a, uh, with efficacy and, and competence? Wow. Okay. Josh, that's a big question. I mean, the first thing I want to say right at at the get-go here is um, that hours that a clinician spends in training do not equate competence. I'm going to say that again, like, because this is so important. The number of hours that you can put on your resume or a little certificate you can show from a, you know, a weekend thing that made you a certain type of professional that does not equal competence. Mm -hmm. And this is our whole field is kind of based on the premises that if you sit in workshops, you're competent. I mean, if you need so many training hours to renew your license, you need so many, you know, hours for different techniques that you're learning to do. You need to sit in so many workshops. And so one of the number one things that I think is that clinicians, if they are going to be, let's use the word master clinicians just for this discussion, they need to videotape their work and have somebody looking at their work. Mm. And some people maybe haven't done that since graduate school or maybe somebody when I was in graduate school, we had to use cassettes. We didn't, we couldn't even, you know, I would come in and play these cassettes. Um, we, we did have a video. We only had audio, but so You know, not a lot of programs, training programs beyond graduate school do that, where we are going to look at a video of your work and we're going to analyze it and look at, you know, what you're doing really well and some ideas of what you could do differently. That is completely different than coming and talking about a case in supervision like we usually do, because when we talk about a case in supervision like we usually do, all the parts of that experience with the client that are implicit, we're missing. Mm-hmm. Like we're not telling the supervisor any of that by virtue of the fact that it's being held in our bodies in a nonverbal way. Yeah. So, you know, this, this idea that you can just verbally discuss a case and then get feedback on it leaves so much room for <clears throat> things not being said yeah that might be the most important thing that needed to be said Mm -hmm. and it's not that the clinician is trying to hide this from their supervisor it's that it's out of their awareness Mm -hmm. and that is the kind of thing that is the most important thing to look at and work on not what's in your awareness and you already know to sort of correct it right okay So in a way, you know, I don't think it's extreme to say often what we're telling the supervisor about is really not what we truly need help with, but we don't know that. Mm-hmm. Video is the answer in that case. 
Absolutely. Um, and as a clinical supervisor myself here at Chaddock, who's used video in reflective supervision and clinical supervision sessions, I can attest the power of bringing, you know, your, the, the clinician bringing those videos in and them seeing themselves work in a way that they don't, that they can't bring in and just talk about. Yes. Um, that, yes. that the, the, about, the ability to impact a clinician's reflective functioning because they're seeing themselves outside of themselves mm-hmm. is so powerful. And being able to ask questions of, you know, just pausing the video and saying, let's look at you and your client. What do you think is going on for you in this moment? What do you think is going on for your client in this moment? Really begins to develop a whole different type of dialogue than just traditional talk reflective supervision. Yes. And I think that, you know, that would lead into the next thing, you know, in terms of how, how we can help clinicians in their developmental trajectory of excellence Mm -hmm. is reflective supervision Mm -hmm. again. So, you know, when I teach about this, I, I, I talk about, you know, there's administrative supervision, like, are you hitting your billable hours and are you getting your paperwork done? And, or if you're in private practice, are you doing your work with your insurance that you need to do or whatever? And then there's clinical supervision, which I think is the most common thing where we're Mm -hmm. either in, you know, case consultation with a supervisor or maybe a peer group, but we're thinking what clinical direction should I go with this case? Reflective supervision which often you don't hear about outside the infant mental health model mm-hmm. is what's going on in me. How is this case affecting me? Mm-hmm. Right. So, so it's not therapy. It's not like, how is your, you know, marriage being affected? Let's talk. No, no. Yeah. It's, you know, that's where some people get like kind of confused. It's like, no, I'm not saying you're in therapy. You, we're, we're putting a container around this in terms of, you know, what is going on inside of you as you're working with this case. So we're putting that kind of container around it. And, you know, some people think that reflective supervision is just like, having almost like a superficial conversation about that. Mm. And that's so much more than that. And it's so much deeper than that. And you don't know that until you've experienced it. You don't know that until you sat in a room with Michael Trout and he asks Mm -hmm. you a question that just stops you in your tracks. Yes. That you have to think so hard about and become so Mm self-aware because he asks the exact right question in the exact right way at the exact right moment to create this huge shift in you as a helper. Mm-hmm. That's reflective supervision at its best. It's Absolutely. Not, yeah. It's not, let's just talk about how you feel when you see that kid. Oh yeah. You're, you feel frustrated or you feel frustrated. I mean, it's much mm-hmm. deeper than that. If you're asked a question in super in reflective supervision, you can just spit out an answer. That's not what we're talking about. Yeah. To no, me, the, it, it's when you are just, again, I'll say it, you are just stopped right in your tracks and there's nothing else you can do except think deeply about what is being asked of you. Mm-hmm. Well, That's when I, you know you're with a master. <laughs> no, absolutely. Well, and I think it you, you quickly realize it touches on 
countertransference that you were just unaware of mm-hmm. that was in the background that was um, impacting you, but it brings it to the forefront. Yes. Yes. So I think use of video um, is necessary. I think good supervision slash consultation that includes a reflective component in the way we're defining it and describing it. And, you know, having all the hours of training and certificates, I'm a certified blah, blah, blah professional. If you don't have these other two pieces, you don't know. You, you may be becoming more and more proficient and you may not be. Yeah. Because just hearing about this and hearing information is not the same as becoming proficient and competent in whatever that is that you're learning. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. Please follow our site, tkcchattock.org, or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts for future episodes. If you enjoy our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please visit tkcchattock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory.